Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, May 13th, and Sunday, May 14th, 2023. Uh, happy Mother's Day to all any mothers out there who are listening to this, uh, or you know, if you're reading the newsletter, I did say Happy Mother's Day in there as well. Hope you had a great day. Uh, there are a few anniversaries. On May 13th, 1805, this is the anniversary of the final battle of the First Barbary War, the Battle of Derna, the end of that battle. Uh, it involved a very small U.S. contingent that was made up mostly of uh, Bedouin mercenaries uh, recruited for the task, uh, Bedouin and Turkish, I guess, mercenaries recruited for the task, uh, by a Marine lieutenant named Presley O'Brien. Uh, the expedition was led by William Eaton, who was the former U.S. consul in Tunis. Uh, this was all part of an invasion of Libya that was meant to overthrow the emir of Tripoli, Yusuf Karamanli. Uh, the battle uh, took a few days, but the U.S. was finally able to take Derna, only to have the U.S. government turn around and negotiate a deal with Yusuf Karmali. So the battle was uh, kind of anticlimactic. Uh, part of the, the settlement of the war was the return of the city of Derna to uh, Yusuf Karmali. But uh, basically kind of a nothing burger. But this was the United States' first overseas war and first war uh, in the Islamic world. We would be back. <laughs> uh, yeah, to you know, I'm sure everybody was happy about that. Uh, but uh, yeah, for for a brief period of time, anyway, this was uh, our first and and only for at least a little while uh, engagement with the Islamic world, and just an interesting little sidelight in U.S. history. Uh, speaking of interesting sidelights in U.S. history, on May 13th, 1846, the U.S. Congress voted to declare war on Mexico which marked the formal start of the Mexican-American War, though uh, fighting in that conflict had actually begun several days earlier. The war ended, of course, in February 1848 with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, one of the most lopsided treaties ever negotiated, in which Mexico acknowledged U.S. sovereignty over all of Texas and ceded to the United States most of what is now the southwestern U.S., everything from California to New Mexico, pretty much. On May 14th, uh, 1560, this is the Battle of Jerba, uh, which took place off the coast of Tunisia, uh, one of three great naval battles in the 16th century between various Christian holy leagues and the Ottoman Empire. Uh, the Battle of Preveza in 1538 was the first of these, Jerba in 1560, and then the Battle of Lepanto, of course, in 1571. Everyone remembers Lepanto because the Holy League won uh, very decisively over the Ottomans, and really the Battle of Lepanto changed the course of naval warfare. Jerba is a bit less, uh, let's say, dramatically significant, but it did confirm, uh, uh, there was it was an Ottoman victory, and it did confirm uh, Ottoman control of Tunisia. Now, the concern for the, the Europeans of the Holy League was that the Ottomans would use their position in Tripoli to threaten the Western Mediterranean. They never really did that. Uh, but that's a that's another story for another time. But there there is a piece uh, at the newsletter on the Battle of Jerba. It's a very interesting story and, and one of the more significant uh, of the 16th century naval battles in the Mediterranean. 
Uh, and also on May 14th, 1796, English doctor Edward Jenner administered an experimental smallpox vaccine to the eight-year-old son of his gardener. Uh, he inoculated the boy with pus from a woman who was infected with cowpox. That technique had already been used, but Jenner then, maybe a little bit unethically, I would say, uh, intentionally exposed the child to smallpox. This seems a little dicey to me, but, uh, you know, it was for the cause of science, I guess. Uh, he, so Jenner is credited then with proving, uh, essentially, that the vaccine, the cowpox vaccine, actually worked. All right, into the news. In the Middle East and Syria, the Syrian government has agreed to leave two checkpoints along the Turkish border at Baba Salameh and Al-Rai, uh, open for at least another three months in order to allow humanitarian relief to keep throwing, flowing through them to areas that are still recovering from February's major earthquake event in Turkey's Gaziantep province. Uh, the United Nations had requested the extension. Uh, the crossings are key to bringing aid to areas that are controlled by Syrian rebel factions who refuse to accept relief from Damascus. Uh, the largest of those rebel factions, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, is apparently on another of its periodic missions to convince Western governments to forget its past ties to al-Qaeda and remove it from their various designated terrorist groups lists. Uh, and as always, Western media is dutifully providing PR support to the effort. In this case, it's the Associated Press. Uh, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham boss uh, Abu Muhammad al-Jalani. Al-Jalani is, we are told, bending over backwards to show that he's not like all those weirdo extremists in al-Qaeda. Even though he was one of Al Qaeda's most prominent figures in Iraq and Syria from 2003 through his big breakup with the gang in 2016, uh, we're told by the AP that he's quote spreading a message of pluralism and religious tolerance end quote, and that he quote has cracked down on extremist factions and dissolved Hayat Tahrir al-Sham's notorious religious police. End quote. He wears regular clothes. Seriously, they get into this. He wears shirts and trousers now instead of white turbans and robes, which I guess are the weird clothes. He wears normal clothes now. So he's just like us, except that none of these very cosmetic changes indicates that Jelani has actually changed his worldview. There's every reason to think that if his position were suddenly made more secure, let's say through an influx of international support and recognition, he would before too long revert back to overt extremism. With most regional governments normalizing relations with the Syrian government. Jelani is desperate to attract U.S. support. Well, okay, more U.S. support than he's already gotten to reify his informal position as the leader, effectively head of state of Syria's rebel-controlled Idlib province. So I understand why he keeps trying to make this media pivot to uh, from Islamist extremist to sensible moderate. I don't understand why media outlets keep falling for it and letting him uh, try to do it in their uh, in their outlets. But uh, who am I? You know what? What do I know? Uh, on to Turkey, as you undoubtedly know, Sunday saw the first round of Turkey's general election with most attention focused on a presidential race that polling suggested could see the defeat of Recep Tayyip Erdogan. After a wild vote count that featured uh, vastly different projections by different outlets and a healthy dose of conspiracy theorizing, the result appears to be possibly the most mundane of all possible outcomes, a runoff. Erdogan and lead challenger Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu will face each other head-to-head -head in two weeks. There are still first-round votes to be counted, but as it stands right now as I'm recording this, Erdogan finished with a 
around 49% of the vote. To Kilicdaro lose 45%. If that lead holds, one would have to assume that Erdogan is the favorite to win the second round. Kilicdaro will have slightly underperformed and Erdogan slightly overperformed their polling. Uh, and if this becomes a contest to appeal to third place finisher Sinano Ons, roughly 5% of the vote, well, the nationalist Erdogan has more in common with Oan ideologically than does Kilic Darolu. Uh, that said, it is, of course, a red flag when any long-standing incumbent gets taken to a runoff. And presumably, if Oan's voters were prepared to vote for Erdogan, they would have done that in the first place. Even so, it seems easier to envision Erdogan picking up another point than Kilic Darolu picking up another five points. This is, of course, assuming that the 49-45 lead holds. Uh, if Kilic Darolu finishes when the votes are finally fully counted, if he finishes in a stronger position, then that may change things. Uh, I realize there is also a potentially consequential parliamentary side to this election, which uh, is getting drowned out by the presidential contest, but I don't yet know how that part of the election has shaken out. And given how powerful Erdogan has made the Turkish presidency, maybe it's not all that consequential. In fact, uh, who knows? We'll have to wait and see. Uh, in Iraq, the Iranian foreign uh, ministry excuse me, summoned Iraq's ambassador to Tehran on Saturday to complain about the presence of terrorist groups in Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, this would be groups like the Democratic Party of Iranian Kurdistan and other pro-Kurdish parties slash militant groups. Iranian officials say the presence of Iranian Kurdish groups in Iraq violates a border security deal that the two countries reached back in March. In Israel-Palestine, the Israeli government and Palestinian Islamic Jihad reached a ceasefire agreement that went into effect Saturday night, a final exchange of fire around that deadline notwithstanding. At least 33 Palestinians, at least 10 of them civilians, and one Israeli were killed over the course of five days of violence. The Egyptian government took the lead in mediating the truce, though the Biden administration also thanked the Qatari government for some unspecified contribution. Sunday saw one more rocket fired out of Gaza, which Hamas officials claimed was the result of a technical error, uh, and that drew an apparent Israeli airstrike in retaliation. Uh, whether that proves to be just an aberration or causes the collapse of the ceasefire uh, still remain to be seen as I recorded this. So um, maybe we'll have more to say tomorrow. Uh, in Iran, according to the New Arab, Iranian, the Iranian and Egyptian governments have agreed to restore diplomatic relations, including the opening of embassies. In some ways, this could be regarded as an even more significant landmark than Iran's diplomatic thought with Saudi Arabia, in that Egypt and Iran cut ties all the way back in 1980, after Egypt normalized relations with Israel and gave refuge to deposed Iranian Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. Geopolitically, Egypt isn't nearly as important as Saudi Arabia, of course, so... Uh, it's probably not quite as significant. Uh, in Asia and Armenia, uh, Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan and Azerbaijani President Ilham Aliyev got together on Sunday for more peace talks, this time in Brussels under European Union mediation. Uh, apparently, recent border clashes were not enough to disrupt the planned meeting. As with their foreign ministers meeting in the U.S. earlier this month, there's no indication the two leaders agreed on anything of substance. But that didn't stop EU officials from insisting that the session had helped to advance the bilateral peace process. In Pakistan, unspecified militants attacked a camp operated by that country's paramilitary frontier corps force in Baluchistan province on Friday. The Pakistani military responded and eventually drove them out of the camp, uh, but when the fighting was done, at least six soldiers, six militants, and one civilian had been killed. There does not appear to be any indication as to who was responsible for the initial attack. 
In Thailand, the electoral picture seems substantially clearer than the one in Turkey. Uh, at the time uh, I re- recorded this, nearly all of the vote had been counted, and the country's two main civilian opposition parties, Fu Thai and Move Forward, were well ahead of the military's Palang Pracharat Party and Prime Minister Prayut Chan-o-Cha's United Thai Nation Party. An opposition victory was expected given polling, but it is mildly surprising to see that Move Forward is actually leading the race, which seemingly puts its leader, Peter Limjaroan Rat, uh, sorry if I mangled that too badly, uh, puts him in line to replace Prayut as prime minister. Uh, however, the Thai military has put a number of measures in place since its 2014 coup to ensure that it retains at least a very substantial political role regardless of any electoral outcomes. So the real political drama may only be starting. In Africa, in Sudan, there were reports on Sunday of heavy shelling and airstrikes being traded by the Sudanese military and the rapid support forces in Khartoum and its sister cities, Bahri and Omdurman. There are also reports of very heavy fighting in and around the city of Janina uh, in West Darfur uh, that left more than 100 people dead between Friday and Saturday. Volker Perthis, the United Nations Sudan envoy, is warning of an influx of foreign fighters. Now, from what I can tell, these are fortune-seeking mercenaries and not uh, overhyped Western rhetoric about, rhetoric about the Wagner Group's involvement aside. Uh, they're not part of any organized intervention. But their presence is only going to make the conflict more intractable as they bolster the warring sides. Uh, in Libya... Libyan security forces have reportedly deployed to the western city of Zawiya uh, in the wake of factional fighting there that has killed at least three people in recent days. Uh, Details are scarce, but these factions have apparently been clashing on and off for several weeks. Uh, The combination of the deployment and the intervention of local grandees, mostly tribal leaders, has perhaps gotten things under control. In Mali, that country's ruling junta and the UN are disputing a claim that Malian soldiers and unspecified foreign fighters, Wagner Group mercenaries most likely, massacred some 500-plus civilians in a village called Mura in March 2022. The UN Human Rights Office leveled that accusation in a report it released on Friday. The junta issued a statement on Saturday saying that it, quote, vehemently denounces this biased report that is based on a fictitious narrative and does not meet established international standards, end quote. So I guess that would be a no. The junta insists that not a single civilian life was lost in the Mura operation. This seems a little too good to be true, but I guess that's their story. Uh, in Burkina Faso, suspected jihadist militants attacked a village in the uh, western Burkina Faso's Boucle du Moon region on Thursday. Again, I apologize for my lousy French, killing at least 33 people. The identity of the attackers is unclear. Uh, on Saturday, authorities extended for at least six more months a state of emergency that's been in place since March in eight of the country's 13 regions, including Boucle du Moon. Uh, In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, members of the ethnic Yaka Mobondo militia are believed to have been responsible for an attack on a village in the western DRC's Kwango province late Friday that left at least 11 people dead. The same attackers reportedly continued their rampage on Saturday, uh, attacking a village in Kinshasa province. The Mobondo's recent activity is a spillover from the Yaka's ongoing struggle with the Teke community in Mayandombe province. 
in Europe, uh, in Russia, four Russian aircraft, an Su-34, an Su-35, and two Mi-8 helicopters were all shot down in a single incident near the Ukrainian border over western Russia's Bryansk Oblast on Saturday. The jets were on their way to carry out airstrikes in Ukraine, and the helicopters were there in support of that mission. The obvious conclusion here is that they were downed by Ukrainian air defenses, but Wagner Group boss Yevgeny Prigozhin, who could really earn some extra income these days doing press releases for the Ukrainian government, speculated via telegram on Sunday that they were instead shot down by Russian air defenses. Presumably, he means in a friendly fire incident of some kind, though who really knows at this point. In Ukraine, there have been a couple of new revelations related to Ukraine from the Discord leak in recent days. Uh, Prigozhin was, of course, the subject of one of them, because, of course, how could he not be, frankly, at this point? Uh, according to the leak, back in January, Prigozhin offered to provide the Ukrainian military with Russian troop positions if they agreed to withdraw from Bakhmut. The Ukrainians rejected this offer because they believed it was a trick. Uh, may have been. The Discord leak alleges that Prigozhin has been in regular contact with Ukrainian intelligence services throughout the war. Uh, it's hard to believe under those circumstances that the Russian military is refusing to provide, has been reluctant at least, to provide uh, Prigozhin's men with ammunition. Uh, it will be interesting to see if this leak exacerbates Prigozhin's tensions with the Russian defense ministry. The other leak makes some unflattering claims about Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, specifically uh, that he's been agitating behind the scenes for more serious attacks against Russian targets of the sort that Washington has at least overtly uh, been trying to argue against, lest uh, we wind up escalating this conflict. Among Zelensky's big ideas was blowing up the Druzhba oil pipeline running from Russia to Hungary, which, in case anyone has forgotten, is a NATO member. Uh, this link raises some concerns about what Zelensky might do if he were, say, given long-range missiles that can hit targets inside Russia, which, come to think of it, the British government recently did. Uh, they gave Ukraine uh, what are called storm shadow long-range missiles, which the Ukrainians have already allegedly used to attack Luhan a target, Russian target in Luhansk City in eastern Ukraine, and which could be used, theoretically, to attack targets in Russia. So that's cool. Uh, looking forward to how that plays out. And on to the Americas. Finally, in the United States, the Intercept's Stephen Semler wonders how serious the Biden administration really is about that whole democracies versus autocracies business. Uh, I'll read you just a, a couple of paragraphs of his piece. Of the 84 countries codified as autocracies under the regimes of the world system in 2022, the United States sold weapons to at least 48 or 57% of them. The at least qualifier is necessary because several factors frustrate the accurate tracking of U.S. weapons sales. The State Department's report of commercial arms sales during the fiscal year makes prodigious use of various in its recipients category. As a result, the specific recipients for nearly $11 billion in weapon sales are not disclosed. The regimes of the world system is just one of the several indices that measure democracy worldwide, but running the same analysis with other popular indices produces similar results. For example, Freedom House listed 
195 countries, and for each one labeled whether or not whether it qualified as an electoral democracy in its annual Freedom in the World report. Of the 85 countries Freedom House did not designate as an electoral democracy, the United States sold weapons to 49 or 58 percent of them in fiscal year. 2022. So that's great. Uh, to be fair, this is me again, the United States accounts for about 40% of all arms sales every year, and you can't maintain that kind of pace just selling to the good guys. You, you gotta, you know, spread it around a little bit. You don't want our fine defense contractors to have to take a haircut, do you? I know I don't. Uh, so let's let's sell wide. Sell, sell them off. Sell them all uh, to everybody. Uh, first come, first serve, frankly. Uh, on that happy note, uh, as always, uh, always like to like to end on a happy note. Uh, that's it for us tonight. Thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter. And again, happy Mother's Day uh, to uh, all the mothers out there. Uh, I don't know how many mothers listen to this newsletter, but if you're a mother, happy Mother's Day. Uh, thanks to all of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers, especially those of you who are paid foreign exchanges subscribers. And uh, if you haven't become one of those yet, please, please do consider it. Uh, it makes the newsletter possible. Until next time, as always, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.